Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, Zach. Hey, I'm sorry about that. I don't know why my phone didn't ring. It just popped up and said missed call. Yeah, I know. I'm blaming it on Trump. (laughs) Hey, I will go with you there, too. (laughs) Why not? We can, you know, everything wrong with the the post office. Now we'll just say everything wrong with uh, cell phones, too. (laughs) Cell phones, too, yeah. (laughs) Keep Waco Loud and Rogue Media Network, this is Invisible Icon. I'm your host, Travis Scott, and on today's episode, we listen in on a phone call between executive producer Zach Burke and Tom Wilson III and Tom Wilson IV. I'm Zach Burke, executive producer here on the podcast, and I had the privilege of being able to not only talk to Tom Wilson's son, Tom Wilson III, but his grandson, Thomas Wilson IV. I was able to talk to Tom Wilson III about the later years of his dad's life when they found out that he was diagnosed with Marfan syndrome and unfortunately his untimely death at the end, as well as be able to dive in to Tom Wilson III's grandmother or Tom's mother and see just how big of a part she was in their family. I got to hear some great stories from Tom Wilson III about being in the studio and just other things of growing up as Tom's son. I also had the privilege of speaking to Thomas Wilson IV, his grandson, and what he thought about his grandfather's legacy. 
the stories he's been told from his father, as well as him continuing in the footsteps of standing up for what he believes is right, along with the other members of his family, by continuing a career and helping with activism and something that he's strongly about. It was just a great conversation. I enjoyed every minute of it. And I think that there is just so much great info here for people to digest. Um, what are your earliest memories of your dad in terms of, cause I guess he would have been uh, at Columbia, obviously with Dylan and stuff mm-hmm. while you were there. What is, I know you talked about Dylan some, but do you have any other just kind of, you know, memories about that time or maybe your dad taking you into the studio, something like that? Yeah, no, I, I can remember, um, knowing what my dad did. I can remember my dad wanting me to, uh, uh, participate in music but he always said it wasn't so much for music's sake itself it was more like it was a respite from the everyday world that you could create stuff yourself that you could um when things were kind of gloomy you could always resurrect a beautiful day by uh going within yourself and creating music so he saw it as kind of a safe harbor and i can remember having some of these musicians um, and, and Dylan was one of them suggesting guitars to my dad that I should get that type of stuff. Um, and I was probably about seven or eight when it was kind of coming into focus what my dad did. Uh, did you play any instruments when you were little then? That would have made way too much sense, Zach. That would have made <laughs> way too much sense. Celebrated record producer, son doesn't play any instruments. It's kind of like uh, having a Spanish parent and not speaking Spanish these days. Same, same type of lame stupid stuff the kids do. I, it was forced upon me to a certain degree, but never really force fed. So when I kind of dropped the ball on it, it kind of withered on the vine. I got you. What was it like then, obviously? Cause you were still, you know, uh, in your early years, there as a child when y'all moved then from New York to LA, right? When he went to work for Verve and MGM. Yeah, he had, um, he had been working for them, uh, I think both times, I think he was working on both sides of the coast, but, you know, being a teenager and not that plugged in and more, you know, more concerned with lost in space in the wild, wild west than, uh, than that type of stuff. I don't really have a first person perspective of that other than the moving. Um, it was kind of, uh, it was a good, good kind of cut for me and that I was going to be starting high school. So I had, I'd done one year of high school because it goes, uh, ninth through 12th in um in massachusetts but then it was a good kind of separation to move into uh la and la was cool i mean i moved into a a gifted gilded life in la is very nice yeah that's i was gonna ask you just from your standpoint standpoint how different it was then but it seems like you just said there that you know maybe not culture shock in a way but just a lot cooler of a scene there in la well, it's weird because in growing up in Cambridge, there is a, there's an Austin dimension to it. There's a Berkeley dimension to it. There's an Ann Arbor dimension to it. And you have a bohemian town that's dominated by a college. Cambridge, not so much um, because it's so close to Boston. It's right across the river. But Austin, you know, it's got the state capital there, but it's still UT. And Berkeley has San Francisco close, but it's still Berkeley. So there was that kind of... Um, eclectic bohemian thing and when i moved to la it was much different it was a um it was a much uh well yeah i was right beside the beach um there was the hollywood dimension i mean i can remember um 
driving down Sunset Boulevard with my mom, and I'd been there about three or four days, and we pulled up to a stoplight, and there's a guy in a convertible, and I do a double take, and it's Peter Graves from the Mission Impossible. And I just go, oh, my God, it's, it's Mission Impossible. You know, it was, it, was, it was so you're thunderstruck by it. And I've been around celebrities, you know, but I, you're still struck by the whole Hollywood milieu. It was, it was different. It oh, was that, different. That's funny. Um, you bring up your mom. And just because I'm curious, because I haven't been able to read much about it, how, what kind of person was your mother then, just to kind of get a full view of y'all's family? Well, my mom, my dad always said my mom was the smartest one in the family. Um, she was a, a, a very kind of nurturing, granola-type, motherhood-type woman um, who was, uh, at that time, would have been called a hippie. Um, you know, uh, she helped start Ecology Action in, in Cambridge. Um, she was always, you know, concerned about animals and stuff. So there was my hard-charging dad and my mother was more of a... Uh, a granola Birkenstock type person, but very, very shrewd, very smart, very politically aware, um, and very articulate. I mean, I get a lot of, I get a lot of my abilities from my mom. I truly am a hybrid, um, as far as any of the talents I have. So just a nice little balance between the two of them then? Yeah. You know, it, 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 in a, in a corny kind of uh, trite way, there is a yin and yang dimension to it because my dad was, my dad was very much a, um, a, a linear thinking, hard charging guy, but also very um, uh, open to new ideas. And my mother was also like that. So, but she was much more, much more patient, much more, um, uh, I want to say, I don't want to say compassionate because it kind of, if it's in opposition to my dad, my dad was a very compassionate person, but my mother was one of those people who, you know, well, we only have 13 strays. There's plenty of room for a 14th cat. I mean, the cat's hungry, you know, that type of woman. Sounds exactly like my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we <laughs> when have, in doubt, kill them with kindness. Yeah, no, yeah. no it's, we have four uh, rescue dogs right now. And it's always like it started with one, and then there was a second, and then there was a third. Oh, we have room right. for a fourth, but... No, it's right. And the four, the four are lonely. So, you know, there would be a fifth. Oh yeah. And and it just keeps building, but you know, it's just, it's just all the kindness she has there to do that. And you just learn to love them as they come in. Um, exactly. Do you have, I I don't think I kind of asked this, but do you have any stories or memories you have of when your dad kind of like took you into the studio with him? Oh yeah. I went into the studio with my dad all the time. I mean, I, I, all during the seventies, I worked in the summer, like in 74 and five and stuff. Uh, my dad was deeply involved with the record plan in Los Angeles and New York. So I, I worked in there. Um, I saw countless acts in there. Um, I mean, I was there when Rufus was recording. I was there when Joe Walsh was recording. Um, I was there with, um, I was there with Zappa recording. Um, one of my, one of my, uh, I guess biggest mistakes I ever made when I was about, I, I'm probably about, I was on the East Coast, I believe, so it must have been about 11 or 12. My dad says to me, hey, you want to come to the studio tonight? And I said, nah, nah, the Wild Wild West is on, Dad, and it only comes on on Fridays. And so I'm not, that's all right. Come to find out it's Dylan and Jimi Hendrix are in the studio, <laughs> and I'm sitting at home. 
watching <laughs> serial TV, you know? So, but yeah, no, I, as, as I got older, I, I got more of an appreciation. I was, you know, my goal was to be an engineer because I saw the weight that a producer carried and the artistic stuff. And I wasn't sure if I had that kind of talent, but the idea of the nuts and bolts of it appealed to me. In fact, part of the reason I, uh, I chose the university of Michigan is I got into some other schools. I got into a school in New York and I got into schools in Colorado and in California. And I just didn't think with all the nefarious stuff that was going on in the rock and roll business that I'd ever graduate. So I safely tiptoed off to the university of Michigan and the safety of the Midwest. So uh, <laughs> I, I understood the perils and also the excitement of being inside a recording studio. Oh, that's just to think of Dylan and Hendrix, both in the same, uh, I know. It's just uh, I, I I love all the music that and like obviously when I emailed you what two years ago about this when we first started, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. like the thing that drew me to your dad obviously was that all the music that he worked on and he produced were all stuff that I loved already, and just to see you know and it, it, yeah you know Zach and I hear that stuff and I hear that but the thing that that really that I hang my hat on that I'm most proud of is that is the, the eclectic nature of it. You know, not only were they kind of um, seminal type acts and different stuff, but they were courageous choices. They were choices that kind of locked in with the way he thought about things. And when I say that, what I mean is that he was always for the iconoclast. He was always for somebody who was doing something different. So if it was Dylan's acerbic lyrics, or if it was, the the complexity of Zappa or the fluidity of Coltrane. These are the things that would really draw my dad. But at the same time, he would always be kind of like a lighthouse looking out over the horizon for something else to kind of whet his appetite. Oh, that's, that's a great, great quote there. I love that. And I think that's part of the reason I'm a big sports guy. Uh, I used to work in sports radio for about 10 years and hosted a show and I was the production director there for 10 years too. But the thing that I keep mm-hmm. coming back to, because as a sports guy, all sports guys, we only love sports analogies apparently because we don't know how to compare things to anything else. But your dad, <laughs> your dad to me is like that five-tool baseball player. Like he can hit, mm-hmm. he can throw, he can run, he can fit. He has all of it. And you can see it through all the different artists. Like you talked about, you know, the uh, how eclectic it is from Coltrane and Cecil Taylor to Dylan you know, Simon and Garfunkel are kind of in that, but then, you know, you go straight to Zappa, who's not like that. Just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think and you that, Kayla and stuff yes. like that. And, and to, to, to carry on with your baseball analogy. And when you can't play anymore, you're a perfect manager. Mm-hmm. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. And he's a total sports fan as am I, as is my son. Um, and it's uh, it, it's interesting because I can remember him telling me one time, you know, being from Texas and all, and my son and I are huge basketball fans, and I played three sports in high school, um, and and my dad, uh, my dad would say, man, when are you gonna let that round ball go? When, when are you gonna let that go, man? He says, you know, the real sport is football, <laughs> you know. So, um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm. At the same time, he had a love for tennis too, you know, and that speaks again toward what we're talking about. One is a barbaric, combative sport, and the other is the ultimate individual ballet. Oh, totally. That's. Uh, I'm. I'm on the same boat as you were. Like in high school, I. Uh, I did play football just because we were at a small school, 
and uh, mm-hmm. it was one thing you had to do, but I much rather preferred basketball and baseball the whole time. And it's still like even now, if I watch something, like I can tell you, I've watched and paid more attention to the basketball going on in the bubble or the baseball being played than any of the NFL news. Uh, well, but, and you know, you can, you can, you can cloak yourself in that one, they're more cerebral, mm-hmm. the barbarity of football. There's a complexity to it that you have to understand as well, but the kind of the stealth of hand of basketball and the very, and the slippy and sliding strategy of baseball. If anyone wants to contest the fact you're not a true sports fan, you just tell her I'm up here on a cerebral plane. <laughs> you got here on a primal plane, my brother. <laughs> I digress. I'll bring yeah, it back well, to where. Uh, <laughs> um so you mentioned you brought up that you were in the studio for zappa we've just now like on monday we will release our zappa episode and that was a lot of fun to research mm-hmm. and to look into and obviously you just see how that worked to you what was it like you know being in the studio with somebody like that who was so eclectic and just kind of you know not we'll see oh go ahead my, my experience with Zappa was different because I wasn't there when he was making the three albums that my dad did. I was there when he was, when I was in the record plant in 75, Zappa came in with a full orchestra. So now Frank's established. Now Frank has the cachet to do what Frank wants. And he's got all these studio musicians. I mean, like 45 of them in the studio. And uh, I'll never forget. He walks by me and he says, uh, um, he walked on this long corridor they had at the record plant and he stopped at the door that I'm about to buzz to let him in. I'm, I'm running the, I'm at the desk, you know, just a kind of a grunt job. And, uh, and Frank backs up and he goes, you're GW's kid, aren't you? And I go, yeah. He goes, nice to see you again, man. And Zappa keeps walking, right? But Zappa's wearing cutoffs, tails, converse, and has a baton in his back pocket. And he walks into the studio and I'm now in the studio setting up chairs and they've got all these 50 year old cello players and, you know, seasoned symphony players. And Zappa starts tapping on the, on the, whatever it is that they stand in front of. And, uh, and says to one of the guys, you're, you're out of tune back there. You're out of tune. And I, and I'm setting up chairs and this guy goes, it looks like this beatnik knows what he's doing. And I was floored, you know, here's a guy who's exact embodiment of what this person isn't. And this guy is now paying homage to him after Zappa just nudges him back online. So I wasn't there for the kind of the, you know, absolutely free, we're only in it for the money, any of that type of stuff. I just wasn't on the scene. But I got to see him in action there. And I got to see some of these other acts. I saw, I saw a lot of peripheral acts that were contemporaries of my dad's. But I was my dad was forever calling me when I was in high school and hold up the phone and ask me what I thought of some playback they were listening to. And I'm listening to a tinny phone going, well, it sounds okay to me, Dad, you know. <laughs> it's, um, but being in there and seeing him in action and seeing him uh, multitasking in the studio, that was very interesting. What? Because in that time, where you're working there, you brought up 75. The years from, you know, 78 till your dad passed away, like, we have what he worked on, but, like, there's not as many stories, obviously, as when he worked mm-hmm. with Dylan or anything else. But, like, the story you mm-hmm. just told was absolutely fantastic. Like, there has to be, you know, a, a guy that was as great a producer as your father and was able to work with so many different groups. Like, obviously... 
that transition to what he was still working on in the seventies. Um, mm-hmm. What to you were some of the biggest things that you think he was able to accomplish then? You know, you mean from the seventies till he passed? Yes, sir. You know, I you know, I wouldn't say I, I I think of my dad as kind of like a comet streaking across the sky, and so there it, it's like at the beginning you say I think I see something over there, then it starts to get brighter, then it gets incandescent, and then it's kind of leaving the realm, and that's kind of the way I look at his career, and in that sense, I think the seventies he was he was going in a bunch of different directions. He was looking to go independent. So he was he was still trying to use the formula of a typical A and R man, which is recruiting talent. I think the game had changed a little bit. I think that he was still in pursuit of trying to capture lightning in a bottle. I don't think he was as successful as that, and I think his patience was waning. And when I say that, I think he was looking to branch out. He was seeing the idea. He'd gotten the you know my dad would get an idea or he would see a, a, a glimmer of an idea and he would say, aha, that I see the trend. And so when he saw the soundtrack for Easy Rider be so successful and one of his songs, Don't Bogart That Joint, My Friend, being on there and becoming an anthem, um, he saw the idea of music as a soundtrack to movies and he was gravitating toward movies and he was looking for something to kind of bridge that gap between formulaic music producing and I don't mean formulaic in a simplistic sense. I mean formulaic in, you know, get 10, to get 10 songs, put them on an album, make money. That's the formulaic part, I think, that he saw as more pedestrian. And I think he liked the depth and the complexity of a marriage between music and movies. And I think that's where he was gravitating in his mind. But again, you're getting this through. Sometimes if you have an impatience with a millennial, imagine a sub-millennial. I'm, you know, I'm 16, 17, 18 at this point, and I'm consumed by my own orbit as well. So that's my take kind of in retrospect, but I think it's a fairly accurate one. It seems like, and again, this is obviously just from what I've read, um, and that there towards that end, kind of like you said, that maybe he was trying so many things that he was maybe getting a little burnt out because just all the different things that, he was trying. I know if I were sitting there and I was spreading myself over all these different ideas I had that I would think maybe something like that would happen where, cause you know, we're human. We only have so much energy is finite. So we can only use so much and spread over everything that maybe it was one of those things of where he was spread out a little too thin. Yeah, you know, I, I could endorse some of that and I can, I can also see a weariness in it. You know what I mean? Of the, the kind of the routine of it. it became, that's what I mean more about the formulaic pursuit of it. You know what I mean? Whether it's wrestling egos, corralling money, looking for talent, uh, dealing with partners, launching a business, going independent. There are many, there are many things tugging you in different directions. And I've worked in the news business before. And, um, and I, I understand at a certain point, you get pulled away from the, the project and it becomes, so if the project is making the news, you get pulled away from that and it becomes making the news profitable. The music, the purity of the music was one thing and the economics of it was another. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, your son's there with you, right? Yeah. 
Okay. I just, do you mind? I know he, you said he had to leave at 1230 if I ask him just a question or two real quick. No, no problem at all. Let me, uh, let me, get you, let me plug you in here. All right. Here you go, Mr. Thomas. Can you just state your name so we know on the recording kind of like to split up there? Uh, yeah, my name is Thomas Wilson and, um, yeah, I go by Thomas. You do go by Thomas. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I just want to make sure I don't, it, it's kind of, uh, I, I didn't want to say something and, uh, call you by what your father <laughs> goes by, what, you know, um, I, since, um, for you, since you didn't know your grandfather, but obviously you've heard, I'm sure plenty of mm-hmm. stories about him. What yeah. does that mean to you? I guess, uh, just of what he was able to do. And at the time in our country, he was able to do it. No, it's super impactful. Um, and only bring, you know, just bits and pieces from my dad here and there. The full picture is fully with me. But, you know, the impact, you know, that he made as far as being an African-American producer during that time was there. And for me, it was almost growing up, you know, I always had questions and things like that. And I wasn't sure exactly what to make of not really getting the full story why it wasn't just as common, you know, had, you know, going to school, listening to Simon Funko or Bob Dylan, or just, you know, artists who my dad grew up listening to. And then, you know, as I get older, realize how much of an impact my grandfather had in those. Um, you know, for me, it was pretty, it was pretty surprising to hear more and more as you get older, but also made me feel really proud to, you know, be connected to something like that. No, I I got you. And when I read and I, you know, look about it, like, even though I'm somebody, it's it's very much, at least for me, like, with everything that's going on now mm-hmm. with Black, La- Black Lives Matter and everything, like, I'm obviously, you know, not the group, but I want to be an ally. I want to support. I want to help. Right. And so I'm out there doing as much as I can. And at the same time, when I go back and I read a story like that to see how... You know, because it's in the 60s. We still have, obviously, you know, segregation and stuff going on there. And him being able to accomplish what he was able to, right. like you said, just is is so impactful. Even, you know, not only to, or, or I guess to somebody who's not even obviously African-American or had to deal with any of that, just to know how the times were. No, exactly. And um, it's uh, something that I felt was also just a challenge to, like, you know, hear about because you're, reminded of all of the inequities that have been, you know, going on since the early times of our country. And then even today you're seeing it resurface in ways that is more publicized with the media outlets and how interconnected we are. And it sucks because you see how, um, you know, in the past with things like these inequities and then the lack of recognition from people's achievements from like way early on in our nation's history. You know, the things like, you know, my grandfather's contributions kind of get lost in the shuffle. And I think as a kid growing up, I wasn't really understanding why um, things like that happened. And, you know, as you get older, you can see that different time periods in our country made it so people weren't um, able to have as much recognition for some of their achievements. So, um, On, a, I guess, a little bit of a lighter note, how musically inclined are you? Compared to your grandfather? Uh, that's funny. I mean, I would say my musical involvement isn't as extensive at all. You know, I pretty much try to stay as current as I can with, you know, the new musical times, but I wouldn't say that I have any type of 
musical acumen as far as playing instruments or doing things like that. I gotcha. Um, what did you, I, I, I remember your father saying you just graduated. What did you uh, graduate with your degree? Like, I guess what's your plan then moving forward now? Yeah. So along the lines of just like the stuff going on in our time period, you can just see this, um, there's more of an emphasis on wanting to do for yourself and you know, have your own business and create generational wealth. So those are the things that the forefront of my education and as I continue to grow. So as I graduated from the University of Texas, San Antonio with a communications degree, it's now gotten into the marketing um, atmosphere and I work as a copywriter slash content creator. So for me to have enjoyment creating content and also building towards my future by getting involved with different groups of people. We're trying to create organizations that get involved in our community being um, about 10 of our African-American friends are forming the black wealth coalition, which is designed to help empower people in our community into the root causes of poverty. So there are things that I can see connected through, you know, my grandfather and my family and my upbringing that inspire me to just be more aware of how, connected you are to the past and how you can, you know, make changes with the people in your community to do better. So that's, um, that's my mindset from education to, you know, getting involved in, you know, my community. I gotcha. Um, uh, what was the, the black wealth coalition? Is that what you called it? Yeah. And, um, I have a friend who's, uh, involved in politics and my dad is actually, um, connected with him as well. His name's Dwight Boykins. And I was able to meet a lot of you know, people through that just, you know, ironic connection that my dad had with somebody and through that, me and some other guys who are similarly minded, you know, business and politics and education, we're all looking at forming a nonprofit and starting a business together. So it's, um, it's, in, it's in the, pro- it's in the, um, it's in the process right now, but we're, we're working towards it. And actually something that we started about three months ago. Oh, that's, that's absolutely awesome. I'll, I'll close out with this question. Cause I know you need to, you got places to be, and I don't mean to hold you back. Um, it's, no, you're it, fine. It's funny you talk about marketing and you being a copywriter and stuff like that. That's exactly mm-hmm. what uh, my wife does, too. So I can see, oh wow, like the, yeah, you know, you, you copywriters are popping up everywhere. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I can see, yeah. though, like when she sits back and she works on something, like the creative process mm-hmm. that's in there still. It's just like, you know, we're talking about your grandfather in a way of him producing music and him being able to use his creativity there or your dad as, Mm -hmm. you know, a a television journalist and be able to use his creativity to write and cover things there. It seems like Mm -hmm. if anything, you're at least continuing Mm -hmm. and and heading down another creative aspect of where you're able to kind of shine and kind of let your mind, you know, your creative, um, just your creativity just kind of explode into what you want to do. Exactly. Exactly. I would, I would definitely agree with that. um, plays to my strengths early on, you know, I was doing English for my degree because I wanted to, you know, practice law and, you know, be more versatile as far as just, you know, crafting arguments and being able to, you know, articulate myself in a way that, you know, is creative and compelling. And I felt, you know, changing paths and getting into communication and now marketing allows me to do that better. So just seeing that kind of naturally unfold and play to my creative strengths was cool to see and then also seeing that um you know kind of connect with my past as far as where my dad and my grandfather come from you know producing and um you know creating content and so now i'm 
you know, excited to see where that path takes me in um, marketing or business, but it's, it's definitely exciting to see, you know, your efforts from school and from your upbringing, your environment, you know, kind of manifest and unfold. And, you know, it's um, exciting because you don't know how it will unfold, but you know, I'm very confident, you know, where I come from and, you know, the work that I put in and all that, that um, I'm excited to see what happens. Well, I can tell you, at least in my opinion, from obviously learning everything about your grandpa and talking to your dad and then, you know, listening to you, that I have a feeling that you'll be extremely successful in what you do. So I'll go ahead and just tell you real quick. I uh, worked in radio, in sports radio for 10 years uh, as a production director okay. and as an on-air host, and I just got so burnt out because I was working like 80-hour days. Uh, so I went and I started working in sports publications after that. But one day, I, about two, three years ago, I just stumbled upon the story of your grandpa, and I just read through it, and I thought, this man has done so many amazing things and he's from the city I live in. How come I've never heard about him now? Like I'm, you know, 28 mm -hmm. years old and I've listened to all this music and I don't know about him. So I decided wow. that I wanted to at least try. Like I didn't know mm -hmm. when I set out to do this, where it would end up that we would have a podcast like this, but I saw that and I just wanted to at least try to get him recognized for everything that he accomplished. And so with us doing that, it's been a, a it's been a wild journey these past two years, but now we're actually able to do the podcast and put it out, and we're trying to get some other things done here in the city. It's just been a really big mm -hmm. passion project for me, and I'm just so grateful wow. that you and your dad are able to kind of take time out to talk to us because mm -hmm. it, it adds to it to, all, to obviously hear from the family he has left. And I think also right. to me that this story, that we're doing this podcast at the right time too because of – how our nation is so, I hate to say it, but divided in a way of where we're trying to yeah. push forward and we're trying to obviously um, find a way to get rid of the systemic racism that's there and push forward and mm -hmm. let everybody have an equal playing field. And we're able now to tell this story about a former Wacoan who was able to go out and do it, yeah. you know, all of this, but for some reason wasn't recognized to and hopefully get him the recognition he deserves. Right, right, exactly. And um, I feel like storytelling is so powerful. And I was uh, reading this book in college called The Miseducation of the Negro. And a lot of what it highlighted was um, how a lot of stories and, you know, things were oral histories during that time period. So things did get lost. And I feel during these times that are really turbulent, storytelling can be such a powerful way to, you know, create conversations and more healthier dialogues where people are aware of, you know, kind of the interconnectedness but also just the things that distinguish us and make us great so i wanted to um also share with you that my job you know i work at a marketing company and they want us to um devote time for a passion project or work with a nonprofit or something that you know we can work on for a period of time and that could be building a website or helping with um maybe a brochure or something that you know is creative so if that opportunity comes up, I definitely could um, contribute to that in some form. I know there's an existing website somewhere, but um, yeah, that was just something that I had in my mind as oh. far as just brainstorming for down the road. I appreciate it very much, Thomas. Yeah, no, we would we would love to, in some way, like we can keep in touch and figure out what it would be, but I, I agree with you, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to do a podcast is because you look at everything like, you know, serial or like all the other podcasts that are out there, like storytelling is what I've always loved. Mm -hmm. uh, I talked to your dad just a minute ago that I'm a huge sports fan, but I've always loved more mm -hmm. about the stories than 
you know, everything else, like the stats wise and stuff. I think that the stories are what shape everything. And if we don't pass them along, obviously we kind of forget them. So it's our job in a way to make sure we tell as accurate of stories that can be passed on in any way possible, especially, you know, now that we're recording it, hopefully it'll be around even longer. But, um, so yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I would, I would love to, uh, stay in touch with you and figure out something. One last thing, uh, we're working on also, and I know we've talked to your dad about this, about a dedication here in Waco mm-hmm. to him, Hope maybe later this year. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It all kind of depends on, uh, you know, how everything works out with COVID. We obviously don't want to do anything until. Right. So it could be next year at this point. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we wanted to invite you to that then, too, obviously. Of Hopefully we're trying to set up something where we can uh, dedicate and uh, honor your grandfather here in Waco then. So I could uh, let you know when awesome. that comes available, too, then. So. I appreciate your time very much, Thomas. Um, is your dad still there? Yeah, he's right here. An awesome, um, Zach. Excuse me. I appreciate that a lot. We'll definitely stay in touch. Oh, no problem. Thank you, man. I appreciate it very much. On the next episode of Invisible Icon, the Tom Wilson story, we conclude the phone call between executive producer Zach Burke and Tom Wilson III. This podcast is produced by Rogue Media Network. Our executive producers are Lindsay Lippman, Zach Burke, Jacob Green, and Katie Selman. Our director is Mike Hamilton. Our theme music is by the Bowlings. Join us for the next installment of Invisible Icon, The Tom Wilson Story. Media Network Podcast.